1898, a struggling author named Morgan Robertson concocted a novel about a fabulous Atlantic liner, far larger than any that had ever been built. Robertson loaded his ship with rich and complacent people and then wrecked it one cold April night on an iceberg. This somehow showed the futility of everything, and in fact, the book was called Futility when it appeared that year, published by the firm of M.F. Mansfield. Fourteen years later, a British shipping company named the White Star Line built a steamer remarkably like the one in Robertson's novel. The new liner was 66,000 tons displacement. Robertson's was 70,000. The real ship was 882.5 feet long. The fictional one was 800 feet. Both vessels were triple screw and could make 24 to 25 knots. Both could carry about 3,000 people and both had enough lifeboats for only a fraction of this number. But then this didn't seem to matter because both were labeled unsinkable. On April 10th, 1912, the real ship left Southampton on her maiden voyage to New York. Her cargo included a priceless copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and a list of passengers collectively worth $250 million. On her way over, she too struck an iceberg and went down on a cold April night. Robertson called his ship the Titan. The White Star Line called its ship the Titanic. This is the story of her last night. That's from the foreword to A Night to Remember, written by Walter Lord and published in 1955. And still, despite only being 119 pages long, the best book on the subject. Even as I begin this episode, I'm still not entirely sure what I want it to be. I keep coming up with what I don't want it to be. I don't want it to be just a recitation of facts and figures and cold statistics. There's hundreds, possibly even thousands of books at this point on the subject of the Titanic. There's definitely thousands and thousands of magazine articles and newspaper stories on the subject. There's at least dozens of films and some really great documentaries, any one of which would probably give you better information, and some of them are presented in in very lively and interesting ways, and could probably tell the story of the Titanic much better than I ever could. I'm hardly any sort of expert on the subject. I'm just somebody who's been a Titanic buff for probably an unhealthy portion of my life. I guess you could actually say it's been an obsession. Uh, Healthy or not, that's for someone else to decide. What I really want to do in this episode is share with you my interest in the Titanic, how I discovered it, why it fascinates, what's the allure and the appeal. And to do that, it's probably best to go back to when I was in high school. I'm not sure exactly what grade I was in. Um, I'm pretty sure it was high school, maybe late middle school, but I'm pretty sure it was high school. And... Despite having been a pretty voracious reader my entire life, I never was one to be assigned reading. I, I've always chafed against that, mostly because the books that we were assigned when I was in school just never seemed to appeal to me. Sure, a lot of them were considered classics, but I've never really been one for the class. I'm just really not one to be told what to do or what to read, that sort of thing. I like to pick and choose what I want to read. And, you know, at this time, 
when I was a kid in uh, in middle school and in high school, you know, much like today, I guess, still, I liked, you know, I liked what I liked. I liked my comics. I liked my Star Trek books, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I can remember one year that we had a reading assignment. We had to pick a book. And the pickings were very slim. And I can definitely remember that Riders of the Purple Sage was one of the books. I can't really remember what any of the other ones were, but none of them appealed to me. None of them looked interesting at all. They looked like they would be a real slog. And of course, I had, by this point, had quite the long history with school reading assignments being just always, in my opinion, they were always boring. They were always just so dry, and I struggled to see the point with any of them. But amongst the choices this time for the reading assignment, there was one book that stood out from the other books, and it was because of the cover that was on it. It had this, all I can describe it as is this eerie green tint. And of course, this book was uh, a night to remember. This was one of the umpteenth reprintings of this book. This book has been reprinted and reprinted and reprinted I don't know how many times. But the cover on this one, of course, depicted the ship going down. It's one of the more famous pictures, actually, of the stern sticking high in the air and the ships going down and, you know, the water's dripping off the uh, the back of the ship and off the propeller blades as these boats are in the water. And I'm trying to remember if that's the one that shows the, the sea being a little choppy or not, but I, I honestly don't remember. But it's a very dynamic cover. And, of course... When I was a kid, one of the big genres that was very, very popular at the cinema was disaster movies. And two of my favorites as a kid were The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. And the cover to this book kind of grabbed me because it kind of reminded me of The Poseidon Adventure. I think there was a Poseidon Adventure poster that may have looked kind of sort of similar to the cover this particular cover to a night to remember i maybe that's just my imagination i can't remember but anyway it definitely made me think of the poseidon adventure which you know was a movie that i i liked quite a lot so i picked it up and i chose that particular book i figured well you know maybe it won't be you know maybe it'll be the lesser of all the evils and i loved it i thought it was a fascinating book i really thoroughly got into the writing style of the book here was history made alive here was history presented in a way that i'd always wanted history to be presented to where the characters came alive they were real people and i could feel the situation that they were in it wasn't just some boring as i said in the beginning a recitation of facts and cold statistics it really made the story come alive and there was such a vast tapestry of characters in the book but what fascinated me more than anything was that this was real this was something that had actually happened to these people and the way lord tells the story in the book and, and introduces characters and people come in and out of the story and you get the the entire story of the titanic pretty much from start to finish but not even necessarily in a linear fashion there was something about his storytelling that captivated me. Somehow or other, I don't know how this happened, but I missed when the ship was actually found in September of 1985. I don't know if it's because I was headed back to school for 
my senior year that year and just all the things that that entails and the stress of the situation and just everything that that the my personal future was holding if somehow it just slipped by me but i don't remember making any note of it when it actually happened but the other thing probably the main thing beyond just being familiar with the story of the titanic from having read a night to remember was after i graduated high school in uh the spring of 86 i ended up joining the air force and left and uh went through basic training and everything came back and was stationed at a base in uh, in upstate new york and i began to you know explore the town and the area of where i was stationed and found this really nice little mom and pop bookstore in that town and right as i was walking in and and exploring around one of the big uh, racks at the front of the store had a list you know had a display of all the newest things that were out all the newest releases and right there front and center was this beautiful glossy it was an oversized book but it was you know it was a, a paperback uh stock on it beautiful glossy picture of this creepy underwater image of this ship just covered with what what i mistook at the time for seaweed and that sort of thing until i really picked it up and and started looking at it closer and thumbing through the book and it was a book called the discovery of the titanic by robert ballard and i was just completely fascinated it brought me back to having read a night to remember and being so fascinated and captivated by that book and flipping through Ballard's book and seeing these images of the actual ship and here it was they'd found it and it was on the bottom of the ocean you know two and a half miles underwater and these beautiful yet very very eerie images and it suddenly was so terribly real to me that sure i understood that a night to remember told a story that it actually happened but it was just a book and of course it was a book written in the 50s but here was a, a another book that was contemporary that showed you know robot vehicles and submarines and it was written with a with a you know what was then a modern sensibility you know the mid 80s and suddenly it really was real this this was an actual event that had happened to real people and ballard had such a a humble almost like a nobility about him that i i was instantly i instantly liked him i i instantly appreciated the fact that this was the guy that found titanic that it wasn't some treasure hunter like the the there a couple of years prior to Ballard, there had been an attempt or two by this Texas oil man who had spent a whole lot of money and time trying to find the ship, but he was trying to do it to get his name into the history books. There was nothing noble about his quest for Titanic. It was just a thing to him. Whereas Ballard, it was different. It was very personal for him. 
sure, you know, there, there were ulterior motives. You know, he was testing a new technology and he was using, you know, uh, uh, trying to get money from the Navy, you know, for financing, that sort of thing. But ultimately, all of that just kind of fed his own personal interest, which was to find the Titanic. And I liked Ballard's story. I liked how it was very personal to him. He felt the same way about Titanic and the story and the lives that were lost that I did. That it was hallowed ground. That this was their grave and it should be treated that way. And I was instantly captivated both by the book and by Ballard. So what's the fascination? Surely there have been other and greater disasters than the Titanic. I guess part of the story, a, a huge part of the story, is that you just can't make this up. I mean, that's evidenced by Robertson's book. I don't know that Robertson really made any sort of a splash from that book, any sort of money, or that any gained any sort of fame... It was just a story that he told, and I don't think it was until after Titanic that anyone really paid any much, any great amount of attention to it. But the story of the Titanic actually happened, and it's one of those stories that the more you delve into it and you learn about the amazing things that happened during that story, amazing coincidences, amazing events, and it's a story that's full of if-onlys. You know, if only they had pieced the iceberg warnings together to, to paint a picture of what lay in the Titanic's path. You know, if only it carried enough lifeboats. If only the California had come to their rescue. You know, just tons of things. That's one of the big things. It, it does play out like a faded event. Like something that was both terrible that it happened, but almost like events were conspiring so that it had to happen. There's the Greek tragedy. You know, I've so many times heard the Titanic referred to as a Greek tragedy to a point where you almost wonder, what, what does that even mean? But there is a, an incredible tragic element to it. And a lot of the tragedy comes from the fact of, did it have to happen? You know, Could it have been avoided? Which it could. It could have in a lot of ways. A lot of it, too, is that I don't think there are many events in history where you can look right at one specific thing and say, that's the moment where the world changed. Sure, there have been great events that have happened that have changed the course of history, but this was a moment that I think even at the time people realized that things were now different. This is definitely an event that you can trace back, especially now that we're a hundred years removed from it, that you can look back and go, that's why the world is the way it is today. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, the Titanic happened during what we call the Gilded Age, which was a, a time of great wealth and success, and people were confident. Technology was the word of the day, you know, progress. And man really felt that we had conquered all, that we were the masters of all that we survey. People were confident in the world around them and in the technology. They felt safe in it. 
that was one of the big follies of the Titanic story is so many people can read that story or learn about that story and go, what fool would run his ship full speed into this ice field and, and not expect to have something terrible happen to them? But the problem was, was that it was ultimately it was complacency it was a false sense of security that nothing could happen to this ship that we mankind had risen above we had conquered the elements we were in control of everything and that this massive ship the largest moving object ever made by man there's no way that anything could hurt it it was impervious to harm and that's where both the, the irony and the tragedy of the story really lie. And that's one of the many things that really fascinates me about the story. The Gilded Age and that mindset of imperviousness ended the night the Titanic went down. When the news stories started to trickle in and people realized exactly what had happened overnight, it shook them out of their complacency. And the world's never really been the same since. When people reflect back on an, a simpler time and on the good old days and bemoan the fact that things aren't as good as they used to be and nothing's built to last and that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I can't help but think that this is the time and the age that they're really looking back to and pining for. So what's the fascination? What is the interest in this 100-year-old shipwreck story? You know, we've had countless skirmishes in those 100 years, not to mention two world wars that would make 1,500 lost lives look like an acceptable loss. What is the interest? Why continue to be fascinated by this subject? And I, I think there are no easy answers to that to that question particularly you know especially for me in particular because it's a combination of factors you know first is the ultimate irony of the situation here was this ship and in that not just any ship the largest moving object ever made by man up to that point the the greatest ship in the world set sail for the very first time you know the the term maiden voyage is always thrown around in reference to the titanic and i wonder how many people really understand what that actually means what that means literally is the first time this ship went out the very first time it went out and it sinks that was a huge huge deal to the people of the time it was the end of an age Titanic in many many ways symbolizes the attitudes of the time it was this massive massive ship that really embodied all of the attitudes of the age in which she was built and so this ship is sent steaming into an area that if only the ice warnings had all been tallied and, and plotted out you could see was headed for <laughs> very likely headed for danger at the least disaster at the worst that there was this massive field of ice directly in her path and 
it's one of those things that you look at in the story and go, how could they do that? How, how irresponsible was that? But you have to understand the mindset of the times. You have to understand the importance of this ship and, and the psychology of the people, of the both of the times and the, of the people that were in charge, especially, say, Captain Smith. They just couldn't conceive of something happening to that ship. Smith is quoted saying something very much like that about a ship that he commanded just a few years prior to that, that he couldn't imagine a shipwreck, that technology and shipbuilding had gone beyond the point of that sort of thing. And it's very ironic. Again, uh, irony plays a huge part in my fascination with this story. The things that people said and the attitudes that people have that, that came back to haunt them. Smith is on record saying things like, well, I've never been shipwrecked. I can't imagine ever being shipwrecked. And then he goes on to have, historically, the greatest shipwreck of all time, at least the most memorable one. And again, like I say, there, there were other disasters. There were definitely greater losses of life than the Titanic, as, at sea particularly. So what is it about this one? Why this one? I think there's also that, again, one of the things that you hear often bandied about when talking about the Titanic is Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy. Everybody calls it a Greek tragedy. What does that even mean? Well, there is a, a Greek tragedy element to it. Just the simple fact that as soon as Smith, the captain, and others compared notes and they realized the ship couldn't float, she was going to die, she was going to sink, and they knew, they knew that at least, at the very bare minimum, half of the people on that ship were not going to survive there's that's a, an element that weighs heavily on my mind what you know both what could they be thinking but also how can you carry on in the face of that knowledge what a terrible burden to carry and yet there's a nobility when you read the story or you see it acted out that the people that were in charge did an admirable job of of keeping their cool, keeping their composure, doing the best that they could in a horrible circumstance to try to help people, to try to minimize the loss of life. The acts of heroism, those are a big part of the story. But probably the biggest fascination for me is that Titanic is one of those things where you can look at and you can put yourself in that situation and try to imagine both what it was like but also what would you be like what would titanic do to you how would you act in that set of circumstances we all would like to think that we would be noble and self-sacrificing if need be that we could step back and allow others to survive or to help people or be one of the nobler characters of the story. That's a lot of the fascination too, is the what would I do factor. There's a lot of things about the story of the Titanic that, that fascinates. One of the big ones that sucked me in 
was from Ballard's book, you know, the images, seeing the ship today as she lies down there. It's very much like having someone had gone into a haunted house and conducted a, a, a full photo documentary of extraordinary things that they saw, you know, a, a real haunting. That's what that book, that was the effect it had on me. It was a haunting feeling. It, it is sad when you see it, you know. It, it, I, at the time it was found, it had been down there 73 years, 73 years between photographs of the ship. You know, the last one is it sailed away from Ireland. And then 73 years later in 1985 and the differences and the similarities you know that last picture the ship's beautiful you know it's very noble it's sailing off to its destiny and then you see the first images of when it was found and again it's sad and it's haunting but it sits upright and it's very noble and majestic still there there's such eerie parallels in that it, it says something i'm not sure what but it speaks to me somehow and that's a large part of the fascination with titanic for me is that the story just speaks to me another large part of the titanic story for me is the uh, the cast I guess you would call it. The cast of characters, the cast of uh, particularly celebrities, people like John Jacob Astor, you know, one of the wealthiest men in the world at that time, Benjamin Guggenheim. You know, these are names that we hear, but as we get further and further removed, you know, now we're a hundred years out from this event, maybe they don't seem as, as big and as important as the luminaries that they were. So imagine today in our world, the likes of, say, Harrison Ford, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Oprah Winfrey, Tiger Woods, Paul McCartney, Elton John, you know, name any big celebrity, a star of stage, screen, politics, music, sports, the A-listers of our society. And you wake up and find out that they've all been swept away overnight in one fell swoop. That's the magnitude of this occasion to the, the people in the society and the world of 1912 at that time. It was a huge, huge event for them. One of the people that really stands out to me in this story, just to give a little bit more perspective of the people that were on the Titanic, and again, the people that fascinate me personally, one of them was a guy called, uh, his name was Clinch Smith. Now, another one of my favorite stories that takes place right around the same time in, in this era is a story called Ragtime, which was a book written by uh, E.L. Doctaro, and there was a, um, a movie made about it, too. The movie's not quite as good as the book, but the movie's still pretty good. But it, it tells in bits and pieces, it, it pieces together this Gilded Age sensibility and attitudes and it tells stories and almost like vignettes of some of the more interesting and some of the more scandalous events that happened in this era just just prior to titanic clinch smith was witness to one of them one of the big elements of the story in ragtime was the i guess you would call it assassination it was a shooting on the roof of uh, madison square garden where 
Stanford White was shot and killed by Harry K. Thaw. Clinch Smith was a witness to that. He was actually at Stanford White's table the night that that happened. And then here he is on the Titanic. The story itself, again, I, I feel it's been covered so many times in so many other places. I'm not really going to go into the specifics of that. That's something that I, I think you'd be better off discovering that on your own in, in other places. But the broad strokes are that on Sunday, April 14th, 1912, at about 11.40 p.m., the lookouts, Frederick Fleet particularly, uh, spotted a dark shape off in the distance and rang the crow's nest bell three times and called down to the bridge and reported that there was an iceberg dead ahead. And the ship was ordered to hard a starboard, which what that means is at this time in 1912, big ships were rigged in such a way that they were rigged like you would rig, uh, like you would operate a, a small boat with a rudder that if you ordered hard a starboard, the wheel was actually thrown to starboard, which seems like, wait a minute, that's turning into the direction of where you're trying to avoid. No, what they were actually wanting to do was throw the wheel to the right, starboard, so that the ship would actually turn left. And that was just one of those holdovers from the days of the rudder. And it wouldn't be for another 10 years or better to where they would actually change it to where the, the wheel of the ship would turn the direction that you actually wanted the, the ship to go, much like when we drive our car today. If you want to turn left, you turn left. Well, back in those days, if you wanted to turn left, you threw the wheel to the right. So the ship was ordered hard to starboard, meaning that they wanted the ship to veer to the left. But it was a huge ship that no one was really that experienced in operating. And there just wasn't enough time for a ship that size going that speed to completely miss this object that was dead ahead. And in fact, it was another irony of the story that if she had simply just run into the iceberg, people would have died. Maybe hundreds of people would have died. But more than likely, the ship wouldn't have gone down. The Titanic wouldn't have sunk if she just plowed into that iceberg. But instead, as they were trained to do, they didn't want to run into an iceberg. They wanted to miss it. So, you know, the effort that was put forth to try to save the ship is what ultimately doomed it. She scraped along the side of this iceberg and knocking holes and, and popping rivets, and it was enough to let the water seep in and uh, and fill the, the ship like like filling an ice cube tray where just one compartment overflowed into the next, into the next, into the next, to where eventually she just couldn't stay afloat anymore, and it went down. The thing in, in that element that has remained in my mind since the first time I ever read A Night to Remember really was never the events on the ship and in the sinking and in those final moments so much as it was the image I've had in my head all these years the the one that haunts me is the image of after the ship was gone when the flag went under and that was it there was no more of Titanic she was fully gone is this image of 1500 people 
in the water in the middle of the North Atlantic. It was at night, there was no moon, the sea was a flat calm. And you've got 1,500 people freezing to death in this water in, in the, middle of, the middle of the ocean. And what that must have been like. And it's just, I can't think of anything. I literally cannot think of, of anything worse, um, uh, an, an eerier image. It, it's just, it's terrible. There's, it's so sad and it's absolutely terrifying. And that's again one of the fascinations for me with the story is is there's you know you have great triumph, but you have great tragedy. There's there's life and death, and there's love and loss. You know there's so many stories of men, you know husbands and fathers, some some new husbands, you know newlyweds that had been married a matter of days. That put their women into these little teeny tiny fragile lifeboats and sent them off hopefully to survive while they themselves stepped back knowing full well that this was likely their death that they were they, they were stepping back and accepting their fate and oh, I just I, I can't imagine I literally cannot imagine what that must have been like and there were heroes in the story you know two of my favorite heroes in this story are uh, are charles lightoller who was the second officer senior surviving officer and he just had an incredible story to tell and generally speaking you know in most accounts lightoller is painted as a, a heroic figure that really did his best and was a perfect officer and really tried to save lives and and really wasn't thinking of himself so much as trying to save as many people as he possibly could in the time that he was given. Some accounts, I think, do paint him as being a bit rigid. He didn't allow men in the lifeboats. In fact, he only allowed one man all night long, and that was because they had a, sh a shortage of uh, sailors toward the end, you know, as the last boats were being loaded, and they found that one of the boats that was headed that he was lowering that it was heading down to the sea didn't have enough sailors to operate it. Hey, we only got one sailor with us. That's not enough to manage this boat. Hold it there! Fast What's the matter? Hey, son! We only got one sailor in this boat. Are there any spare hands here? I'll go, if you like. Are you a sailor? I'm a yachtsman. If you're seaman enough to nip down that lifeline, you can go. Hello? Sir? Let's have that line. All right, well, you know, if you're good enough to, uh, you know, to shimmy down this rope and get into the boat, you can go. And the guy did and, uh, and was saved. And that was the only, the only man that lights all are allowed that night. And as I say, in some accounts, they painted him as being a bit rigid in that respect. But he was following the rule of the day, or what was supposed to be the rule of the day, is women and children first. For Lytoller, it was really women and children only. Whereas on the other side of the ship, you know, men were allowed to go. And But that was particularly, you know, if, if women proved, you know, hard to find or difficult to load into the ship. In the beginnings of the disaster, another huge irony, people didn't want to go. 
know, here they were on the decks of this massive, massive ship. Everything seemed like it was perfectly a-okay and hunky-dory. So why in the world, in the middle of the night, freezing cold, would you want to get in this tiny little fragile-looking, what amounted to a rowboat, and be set adrift in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at night? Why would you do that when you could be safe and warm on the decks of the Titanic? And so people laughed at the idea that there was no way that they were going to do that and it wasn't until the danger was really upon them that it became evident that things weren't right the deck began to slant and the bow went under that people started to realize this is real this is actually happening there's every chance this ship is going to the bottom of the ocean and by that point a lot of the damage had been done as far as a lot of the boats were gone and a lot of the boats that went in those early moments of the disaster left the ship nowhere near full with with plenty more people you know plenty more room for people rather and again one of those great ironies you know the boats could only hold half the people that were on the ship to begin with and in the final tally really only about a third of the people were saved. Another important hero in the story for me, someone I really identify with and really think uh, was an amazing person is Thomas Andrews. He actually was the builder of the Titanic and he was riding along on this trip. He, he was um, ironing out the kinks, I guess you would say. And when the disaster happened, he was so engrossed in what he was doing at the time that he didn't notice the jar or if he did it, it didn't rouse him enough from what he was engaged in to really take note of what was going on I was watching something recently there's a, a new television presentation about the titanic uh, i watched the first episode recently and caught something as interesting as the show was and i was enjoying it and it seemed like uh, it was fairly well researched it had Andrews engaged in a, uh, a card game with uh, a couple of men and, uh, and the actress Dorothy Gibson at the time of the impact. And Andrews in this show actually notes the impact with the iceberg. It was a nice little dramatic moment in the show that I thought was a nice touch. However, it's completely historically inaccurate. Andrews was in his room and poring over charts and graphs and that sort of thing you know he was very much engineer minded he was like the mr scott of the titanic and was one of the first people that the captain smith sent for after the impact with the iceberg and it was andrews that had to give the saddest news of all that night to the captain which was she's gonna sink Andrews never made any attempt to get into a boat. He never donned his life jacket. And depending on which books you read and which movies you watch, he was both very noble in the fact that he just decided to, to stand back and help others and go down with his ship. And then others portray him as uh, shell-shocked, like he was just completely horrified to the with this event to the fact that he he couldn't act i don't really believe that was the case i'd like you know no one likes to think of their heroes as anything less than heroic 
I look at Andrews more of the sense of, I think there was a, a great tragedy there. I think he felt responsible, which is sad because it really, it wasn't his fault. He wasn't the one that drove the ship full speed into an ice field, you know, heedless of all danger sort of thing. He actually was very safety-minded and safety-conscious. He had actually wanted to put more lifeboats on the ship, but that really, that wasn't his call. But he was very concerned about people, and he did what he could, depending on what he thought of particular passengers and crew and, and their ability to handle the truth. He did his best to help save people and, and keep the panic controlled and to a minimum and he's definitely one of the great heroes of the story and it was very tragic that he was lost and of course no story like this is complete without villains and the villains in this story are <laughs> they're interesting very definitely interesting characters they are uh really in my mind not so much villains as they are the classic classic scapegoats nobody ever seemed willing to say much in the way of of negative comments or responsibility or blame on captain smith and i certainly don't want to paint smith as a villain but at the same rate you know the, the captain is ultimately responsible for their ship it really is hard Knowing so much about this story as I do, it still is very, very hard for me to not look at Smith and, and think of him as negligent. But you really have to put your mind back to the way things were done at this time and the mindset of the people of the era. They just didn't think about it. They didn't realize the danger. This is the way that they had always done things. And no one could really conceive of anything quite like the Titanic disaster. So who were the villains? Well, probably the two biggest ones in this story, Stanley Lord, the captain of a ship called the, uh, the Californian. This was the famous ship that was supposedly sighted all night long from the Titanic, that mysterious light on the horizon. And of course, the Californian clearly saw the Titanic the Californians saw all the rockets that the Titanic launched that night, saw the Titanic on the horizon. Officers aboard the ship noted changes in Titanic's position and orientation on the, on the waves, you know, remarking things like, you know, she looks very queer out of the water and things like that, meaning that <laughs> the ship looked like it, it might not be right. And at that time, you know, rockets meant something very important they were a sign of distress they were a call for help and yet the californian didn't do anything she was shut down for the night and these people just stood and watched and again part of the mindset for all this is you have to remember you have to understand that they didn't have radios and radar and all the things that we go to see with today all the tools and, and gadgets that keep us safe, you know, whether we're at sea or in a, in a plane or wherever. They didn't have any of that back then. The, the only thing they really had was wireless. You know, this was pre-radio days, so they had wireless telegraphy. And it was a novelty. It wasn't manned 24 hours a day. And 
on a lot of the ships, especially the Titanic, it was treated as almost as a uh, as a toy or as a um, an attraction for the passengers on the ship. You know, it was something to where they could send messages back home. You know, to to friends back home or on other other ships or. You know, they could get, you know, stock tips or information or make deals, that sort of thing. But it wasn't treated as an integral part of the operation of the ship. So while they did receive iceberg warnings and reports of field ice and that sort of thing from other ships, it was still outside the normal operation of the Titanic herself. It wasn't something where these, these messages were taken immediately to the bridge and put on some sort of chart somewhere. It just wasn't treated that way. Likewise, on the Californian, you know, the operator of the wireless, and there was only one, he had a set schedule. He had a set number of hours that he worked, and he did his duty, and he turned in for the night. So at the time of the Titanic, you know, when the events of Titanic's sinking were actually happening, this guy was off duty, and he was asleep, and there wasn't anybody else on the ship who could work the wireless. It does beg the question, though, okay, so there's only one guy that can operate it. Why not wake that one guy up? I don't know that anybody's ever adequately answered that question. I don't know that anybody's ever really, you know, officially speaking, because there were uh, several inquiries after the Titanic. I don't know that that question ever got asked. Did anybody ever ask, why didn't you wake up your wireless guy and try to find out, try to glean some information of what was happening right around you? I don't know. I don't know that 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 ever happened. But it does seem grossly negligent that at the it seemed the very least that could be done. But again, it goes back to that mindset. Is that something that they would have thought to do? Likely not, because this wireless thing just not really a part of the ship. So Lord, it's the middle of the night. He's off duty. He's trying to catch sleep. To, to hear the accounts and read the stories about this, it sounds like the poor guy was constantly being woken up through the entire course. I don't know how, if you watch, especially if you watch the movies, I don't know how Lord could have gotten any sort of sleep at all because it seems like he was constantly being disturbed by his crew, reporting these things to him. Sir, there's been another rocket. Sir, we're seeing lights. You know, Sir, the ship looks very strange. All these things it does make you get a little irritated with the Lord. Like, why, why don't you just give up and get up? Go try to find out what's going on. He didn't do that. However, you know, Stanley Lord, however negligent he may have been, or however negligent we want to paint him in a historical context, you know, the, he didn't know what was going on around him. He had no clue that the greatest and most famous or infamous sea disaster of all time was happening a few miles from him and that history was going to paint him in this horrible light he had no idea and so i can't help but feel a little sorry for lord this was something he would never ever live down for the rest of his life this was something that clouded the entire rest of his days he had to live with this horrible stigma of the man that stood by and did nothing while 1,500 people froze to death. That had to be a horrible thing for the guy to live with. And I personally can't help but feel a little sorry for him. Likewise, the other villain, I ultimately feel incredibly sorry for. 
and that was J. Bruce Ismay. Bruce Ismay was the president of the White Star Line. You could kind of say owner, but only as a as a false front. Who ultimately owned the White Star Line, and in fact owned you know the entire uh, company that the White Star Line was was just another piece of was uh, J. P. Morgan, you know the the American uh, financier. Who, ironically, he was supposed to be aboard the the Titanic that night, and that really would have added an extra bit of uh, of glamour and drama if he had been on the ship that night, particularly if he had been on the Titanic and had been lost. But he couldn't make the voyage. I believe it was due to illness, if I remember properly. But anyway, ultimately, if you trace it all back, because there have been so many attempts over the years and so many stories about you know who really owned the ship because you know the Irish want to take their their pride and their responsibility in the ship you know they were the builders Liverpool was the home port you know it was a it was a British ship that flew the British flag but ultimately Titanic was owned by an American and that was JP Morgan he was ultimately the owner anyway J uh Bruce Ismay was the uh president managing director of the White Star Line, and he was aboard for this trip, you know, much like Andrews was coming along to kind of iron out the kinks and everything, Ismay was kind of sort of doing the same thing, but from a much more uh, bureaucratic, managerial standpoint, and there's conflicting reports on just what exactly he was doing and how much input he had, you know, some people want to place the blame for Titanic running at the speed that she did into this ice field, you know, like Ismay was maybe, uh, you know, unduly influencing Smith, you know, and, and forcing him to do more, or be more reckless, you know, to try to, there's, there's this story that's been perpetuated now for a hundred years that she was trying to set some sort of speed record and, you know, some sort of time trials or something like that. It doesn't really hold up under close scrutiny. You know, Titanic didn't have a chance of beating any speed records. Uh, there were ships that were certainly much, much faster than Titanic was. So that story kind of, you know, that angle of the story kind of goes out the window. Um, not to mention the fact that Captain Smith, yes, he did work for Ismay, if you want to get rate right down to brass tacks, but at the same rate, I don't think that he would be the kind of guy that would be particularly uh, intimidated by Ismay. At the end of the day, the ship was Smith's. He was the captain. He'd been a captain with uh, with White Star for many, 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 many years. Not the kind of guy to be bullied or intimidated. And this was his last trip. You know, according to legend, Smith was going to, you know, this was kind of his reward for, for many years of faithful service to the line and he was taking the Titanic over on this maiden voyage, and then he was going to retire. That was it. Another great irony to the story. You know, one of those, like, I wasn't even supposed to be here today kind of elements to the story. You know, this this was the last trip. And not so much that as I, I can't help but think of uh, Bill Paxton, who himself has uh, quite the connection to Titanic now. Bill Paxton's character from Aliens, where he says, you know, something like, oh man, four more weeks in retirement or something to that effect. You know, here, literally, Smith was about to retire, had never had any incident happen in his entire career. He's very famously quoted as saying just a few years before Titanic. And then he not only loses his life, but gone in history as the captain of, again, the greatest sea disaster that's ever been. 
you can't get more ironic than that, I think. So Ismay, not a particularly well-liked person, and maybe this is historically speaking. Who really knows how people felt about him at the time? But a lot of things have been written about the fact that he doesn't sound like he was a particularly likable person. He was one of those very staid, managerial, bureaucratic people in all the negative connotations. He doesn't sound like he would have been a particularly likable person. And he was very self-important. Here was the guy, if there was any person aboard that ship, that was singularly responsible for the shortage of lifeboats and for the lax safety standards. You know, this, the Titanic was you know, grandly touted as being so safe and unsinkable. But when you really start to examine the ship and the actual design and the way she was built, it was all smoke and mirrors. The Titanic wasn't near as safe and unsinkable and foolproof as she was proclaimed to be. And if there was really one person that all of that could be laid at the feet of, it would be Ismay. His job was to get the ship built and in the water as cost-effectively as possible, and safety costs money. And so Ismay wasn't about to lavish any more money than the law made him to make the ship safe. He basically made the ship comply with the very, very, very outdated laws of the time, and that was that. So there were not enough lifeboats for everybody. Ismay knew that. You know, the ship was not watertight. Ismay knew that too. So near the end of the drama with the ship, as the ship was clearly headed for the bottom of the Atlantic, and the drama was really reaching a fever pitch, Ismay climbed into one of the lifeboats. And there's conflicting stories onto the circumstances, you know, that there weren't anybody, you know, there wasn't anybody else around. There were certainly no other women around that he was actually asked to step into one of the boats, that he was helped into one of the, you know, there's all these different stories. But at the end of the day, while 1,500 other people went to their deaths, with Ismay, arguably responsible, Ismay himself was saved by his own decision to get into one of the lifeboats. As you can well imagine, this was something that Ismay never lived down. Very shortly after this, Ismay virtually disappeared from public view. He became a recluse, and that's pretty much the way he spent the rest of his life. Bruce Ismay died in October of 1937, so he lived another 25 and a half years. I've always wondered what those years were like. I mean, here's a guy that died at age 74, so a solid third, the last third of his life, was lived under this terrible stigma of being a coward and a villain. And what must that have been like? I have to be honest, I, I can't help but feel sorry for Bruce Esmay. He may have been completely unlikable, exactly how he's been portrayed in so many of the books and films and television shows that have come out about the Titanic. He, he may have been all those things. But he was still a human being, and what a terrible stigma to have to live under. You know, just what a terrible way to live out that remaining third of your life. 
Now, granted, I will freely acknowledge that a good portion of why I feel sympathy for Ismay is uh, one of my favorite interpretations of him was uh, when he was played by uh, the actor Ian Holm in SOS Titanic. Ian Holm is just, you can't help but like the guy. Even when he's playing a uh, psychopathic killer robot in some science fiction movie, I still like Ian Holm. I still find him a, a very engaging actor. And so that may have a lot to do with uh, with my feelings for Ismay. But still, it's again, it's one of those portions of the Titanic story that fascinate and hold my interest is the what-ifs and the what-must-have-that-been-like elements of the story. And Ismay's is one of the big ones for me. What must that have been like to live like that for the rest of your days? What a terrible... And in its own way, what a tragic ending. Something I've never really heard discussed much, but I've always wondered about a lot, is stories of selfless heroism and sacrifice that we've heard in the story. Are they, are they what they seem? Now, I would never want to detract from someone's heroism, and there's no denying that people that stepped back died. But I've always wondered, did they really realize what they were doing? I mean, I'm sure that some people did. As, as it became more and more evident what was happening and what was going to happen, I'm sure that many of the, the people that stepped back freely realized that they were basically accepting death, that they were making a choice that was going to cost them their lives. But in the earliest parts of the story, you know, before the peril became readily apparent, did people realize that? And I, I can't help but think no, not fully, that some of the people that, you know, some of the men in particular that said things like, you know, I'll see you when you get back on board or, you know, give my gloves back to me later, that they didn't really realize that that wasn't going to happen. So how have I fed this fascination with the Titanic all these years? Well, the primary way has been with books. I have been a uh, voracious reader and collector of anything I can get my hands on uh, when it comes to books and magazines, movies, documentaries, whatever, about the Titanic. And uh, I just wanted to discuss some of those and, uh, and steer you to uh, some of the better ones and... Uh, warn you away from some of the not so uh, good ones that are out there because there are so many especially books about the titanic you can't go wrong with any book by john p eaton or charles a haas that's spelled h-a-a-s uh, those guys are experts on the subject their books can sometimes be a little technical they can be a little dry but they are always very 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 authoritative reads the two absolute best books that you know they're must-haves for anybody that has even the remotest interest in titanic would be uh, the two books by walter lord which are of course a night to remember uh published in 1955 which is still you know the go-to book about the titanic and then he had a sequel in 1986 or 87. Uh, it was called The Night Lives On, which is an excellent, 
excellent read. That one, while it does recap a lot of the same things that uh, Lord talks about in A Night to Remember, sometimes even quoting the same passages, I like that book a lot because what it really is, it's an examination of some of the mysteries and stories and just little elements, little touches to the Titanic story that had personally fascinated Lord for those 30-some years between the two books. The things that he thought about the most post A Night to Remember. That's a really excellent read. Uh, Of course, Ballard's book, The Discovery of the Titanic, um, excellent, excellent book. And of course, that book is great because it's fully illustrated all the way through these beautiful, glossy color photographs of the actual wreck. And it's a very personal book, uh, a a really, uh, it's a labor of love and uh, and a real insight into the man himself. Ballard is uh, just an extraordinary uh, historical figure, and uh, that makes just for a, a fantastic read. Another book that's uh, that's great to have, just because it is beautiful, is Titanic, uh, the Illustrated History by Don Lynch and Ken Marshall. Now, Ken Marshall is this painter who has devoted himself to almost exclusively to painting pictures of the Titanic, both as she looked during her day and then as she looks now on the bottom of the ocean. Anytime you see images of the Titanic fully realized on the bottom of the ocean, more than likely what you're seeing is a Ken Marshall painting because up until recently it just wasn't possible to see much of the Titanic as she looks today on the bottom of the ocean, you know, outside of uh, of just a few feet of light that could be projected on her at any one time. It was Marshall's paintings that allowed people to really gain an idea of what it must look like laying down there because he pieced the picture together for us through his paintings. Um, Another great book is one called Her Name Titanic by Charles uh, Pellegrino. Uh, Fantastic book. And what I like about that one is it's written in a very everyman style. There's even a great passage in the book where he compares the Titanic disaster to Superman's home planet of Krypton and the disaster that befell that planet. Um, (laughs) It was a a somewhat weird and tenuous connection, but an interesting observation nonetheless, and I really enjoyed that book because of it. Uh, Titanic, The Death and Life of a Legend by Michael Davey is a very good book. Actual survivors wrote books. There's at least four of them. And there was at least one book that collected all four of them into one book uh, that became basically a tale of survivors. Probably the two biggest and most famous ones were uh, a book written by uh, Lawrence Beasley, who was a second-class passenger on the Titanic that survived. He was a uh, science master at at an English college. And uh, Archibald Gracie uh, wrote one of the more famous, probably the, the most famous, Um, survivor account of surviving the Titanic. Also a book simply entitled The Titanic by Wynne Craig Wade. That's a really good book as well. There are, sadly, some not-so-good and then some just outright bad books about the Titanic. A couple of them... This one's not so much a terrible book as it's just... It's going to seem horribly dated now, and it's 
only got just kind of a tenuous connection to the Titanic, in my opinion, was a book called The Ghost from the Grand Banks, written by none other than Arthur C. Clarke. Now, I like Arthur C. Clarke a whole lot, but this book, it's just kind of bizarre. It takes place on the centennial of the Titanic, which, of course, we're now up to. And while it tried to predict what the day would be like and what things would be like in 2012, it now just seems like a very odd read. Another book was uh, The Maiden Voyage. I forget the author's name. I want to say Jeffrey Marcus. I'm not sure that's right. I have tried so many times to get through this book, and it's really just labored minutiae. It's, uh, it's so technical and dry that it makes a completely and utterly fascinating story um, boring. And that just shouldn't happen. Something's Alive on the Titanic is just a plain goofy-ass book. The basic premise is that the Titanic is haunted. And while that may sound cool, and there actually were some cool visuals, you know, it, granted this is a prose book, so you know these are in your mind, but there were some interesting images that you, you know, that you could conjure up in your mind of these ghosts actually walking around in the Titanic. Some of that was very interesting, but the story does go off in some strange and very goofy ways, and uh, it would make an interesting horror movie you know in the vein of something like apollo 18 but that's ultimately all it is is it's kind of a goofy horror story that happens to take place in the you know in and around the titanic and just the simple fact that we have now actually been to the titanic multiple times on many 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 different dives makes this story stand out as exceptionally silly because none of these other expeditions were ever haunted Worst book I can think of on the subject was one called Beyond Reach, which was written as kind of a, when we didn't find her, I guess nobody ever will book by that, again, that Texas oil man I mentioned before that launched expeditions to try to find Titanic and then never did. Um, ironically, right around the time this book was published, they actually found the ship. Along with uh, books about the Titanic, there are many movies and television shows and documentaries about the Titanic as well. I think the very first Titanic movie was the one that came out about a month after the disaster, maybe a month, month and a half, and actually starred Dorothy Gibson, who was a uh, silent film actress at the time and was an actual titanic survivor she was actually there and a little over a month later starred in a movie about the titanic and she actually wore the same outfit that she wore the night the titanic sank in the course of the movie itself i've never seen it i believe that there aren't any surviving prints of that movie but uh if they ever do find it or if it has been found i'd like to see it just as a curiosity I want to just run down a list of what I consider to be the best of the best of these things because there are literally now hundreds of them and as we approach the uh, anniversary of you know the the 100th anniversary of the sinking um, I did a quick uh, look in the uh, TiVo recently and uh, wow there are a lot of Titanic related uh, things that are going to be on television here shortly here's some of the better ones to look for uh, of course, the movie called A Night to Remember, which is an adaptation of Lord's book. Fantastic, fantastic movie. 
I really only have one quibble with this movie, and it was a quibble that Lord himself had with the movie. The movie starts out with a scene of an unidentified woman christening the Titanic, and the Titanic launches, and that's the pre-credits opening to the movie. The woman's never identified, and it's a very odd scene because it never happened. The rest of that movie is an adaptation of Lord's book, and there's not a lot in it that's uh, fictionalized or blown up bigger than life, yet that scene is created out of thin air. It, It never happened. The White Star Line didn't christen its ships and so the, the this entire scene is just very odd in the context of the rest of the movie which is as accurate as was known to be at the time a fantastic movie though well worth watching for an old movie from the 50s it really packs a punch it uh it's heartbreaking it's well acted the the score is very good the special effects are very good and uh, there's a, at least a couple of moments in the movie that, uh, that genuinely just break my heart. There's actually a couple of uh, cameos to look for in that too, one of which is where um, a door is locked to keep some third-class passengers below decks, and one of the uh, crew members that stands there, you know, basically telling the people, you know, everything's going to be okay, don't worry, you know, we'll let you up eventually type of thing is none other than um, Desmond Llewellyn, who played Q in most of the the James Bond movies up until a few years ago when he passed away. With the words going round that the women and children are taking to the boats. You can't go through here. This is not the way to the steerage boat deck. I've told you. Which is the way, then? They'll be opening the lower deck ports when the orders are given. Oh, they will, will they? We'll see about that. Also, one of my favorite scenes, and a scene that just, oh, is just hard for me to watch is this scene where a steward finds a little boy unattended and wandering the decks looking for his mommy and the steward takes him up and as the water climbs the deck they retreat to the back of the ship and there's a great moment i think it's the last moment we ever see of this steward and the little boy where he's holding the little boy and patting him and trying to reassure him and he's saying something like, you know, we'll we'll soon find your mommy, we'll find her. And he looks and he sees the water approaching them up the deck and he just says, oh God, as he clutches this child to him. That actor, I don't know his name, but he's the same actor that would go on to play Mr. Atos, the librarian in a classic episode of Star Trek. Another one of my absolute favorites is a movie called S.O.S. Titanic, which I'm not sure if this was an actual theatrical movie or if this was just a, uh, a really well-done, made-for-TV movie. But one way or the other, it's really, really good. I enjoy it a whole lot. And one of the things I like best about it is that it has David Warner in it. David Warner is just one of my favorite actors. He was the guy that played uh, Sark in Tron. He was in. Uh, he played uh, Ra's al Ghul. He, he was the voice of Ra's al Ghul in uh, Batman the Animated Series. And ironically, to the best of my knowledge anyway, the only man to sail on the Titanic twice. He was in this movie. He plays Lawrence Beasley, who was a real person, a real survivor. And then he was also in the James Cameron movie in 1997. He played the manservant of the jerk that Billy Zane played in the movie, you know, uh, Rose's fiance. 
his manservant. That's David Warner. He lived in one and dies in the second. And so David Warner, so cool that it actually took two trips on the Titanic to sink him. Now, what I like about both of those movies best, A Night to Remember and SOS Titanic, is that they don't feel the need to muddy the story with fictional characters. Both A Night to Remember and SOS Titanic follow real people that actually were there and their experiences. Whereas nearly all the other ones feel this need to create characters for you to follow. There was a movie in the uh, early 50s. I think it predates A Night to Remember, if I'm not mistaken. It was simply called Titanic. Uh, much like the James Cameron movie, it was uh, it followed a fictional couple. And that movie starred uh, Barbara Stanwyck, who was uh, quite a legend at the time in, uh, in Hollywood. And it's not a bad movie. It's pretty good. The special effects are pretty good. But the story's just not all that good because it really does follow her. And it's the story of... She's kidnapping her son, maybe children plural. I can't remember if there's a daughter in that movie or not, but I know there's definitely a son. She's kidnapping him away from her estranged husband. And he, of course, sneaks onto the Titanic and confronts her about this. And so the movie really follows their relationship and this kind of on-again, off-again sort of attempt-to-reconcile sort of story that they have all while the Titanic drama is playing out. And it takes up the bulk of the movie and the bulk of the story, and the Titanic really is just a backdrop in the story. But still, it's not bad. It's a pretty good one. The new TV series that just debuted, I've only seen the first episode so far, but uh, I thought the the production quality on it was pretty good. And, you know, for the most part, it's... You know, it seemed pretty faithful. I'd have to really watch it again with a, with a much more clinical eye to see if I spot you know errors or that sort of thing. But uh, I enjoyed it. The big one, of course, is James Cameron's movie, and I have something of a love hate relationship with that movie. I have to be honest. It was really James Cameron's movie that put an end, I guess you would say, or at least put a um, put a hold on my Titanic obsession for a long, long time. Because between 1987 and 1997, when uh, Cameron's film came out, that 10-year stretch, I was probably more obsessed with the Titanic and more into that hobby of collecting Titanic books and magazines and newspaper articles and everything else than I was in anything else that I'm into, you know, be it comics or collecting film scores or just all the myriad hobbies that I have. That was probably the the single biggest one I had. I was, I literally was obsessed with Titanic And so you would think that when Titanic came out, I I would have been really, really excited. And I was at the time. I was actually very excited about Titanic on on a level of like when the first uh, Batman movie came out. I mean, it was that kind of excitement for me. I was really, really looking forward to it because I was following very closely the story of Cameron's making of the film and the trials and tribulations that he went through. And I was very excited because here was a guy that seemed like he really got it. He understood the fascination of the story. He understood the incredible story to be told. And it really sounded like to me from what I was hearing that he was going to tell the story right. 
And so I was very interested because at that time, and this may be hard for people to imagine now, you know, with Cameron's Titanic having been the huge, huge box office success that it was, and I mean, for a time, for a good long time, was the most successful motion picture ever made, it may be hard for people now to realize that there was a time when obsession with the Titanic was viewed askance. It was kind of an odd thing to be into. And so I was feeling justified that here was this director who had a, a huge reputation already. You know, he'd done the Terminator films and uh, True Lies and Aliens and all these other movies that he had done that were all huge uh, box office successes he he was uh, an established hollywood legend and now he was tackling the titanic and so it, it lent a, an air of of justification and um credibility to my interest in it i was like now hopefully other people are going to see what i see in this interest in the titanic and it only kind of sort of worked out that way I couldn't help but feel that primarily what people took away from that movie was the Leo and Kate thing. Um, and that bothered me a lot. Not that it wasn't good. I mean, it, it, I thought it was a very fine movie, it, it, even in that aspect. The love story was good. I mean, you really came to feel for those characters and their their love story was was very believable and it was touching and all of that. But I felt like it took away so much from what the story should have been about. The movie was called Titanic. The setting was Titanic. The movie should have been primarily about the Titanic. This is a story that doesn't need embellishment. It's already an incredible story full of everything I mentioned before. It's For one thing, it's, it's full of irony. It's full of... Uh, just all the, the great elements that a, a classic story needs. I mean, it has heroes and villains and triumph and tragedy, life and death, love and loss. And so I didn't really understand this need to create this fictional relationship. I've heard it said that, you know, the whole Leo and Kate thing was done so that they could explore the ship and they could be everywhere at once and kind of give you a feel for what ultimately this this huge ship was all about and there there are some nice sequences in the movie where they basically do tour you through the ship you do see pretty much everything especially the scene where they're running away from i think it's running away from the from her fiance's bodyguard or something and they run like through the engine rooms and they wind up in the hold and they, you know, they make love in the Renault uh, motor car, stuff like that. I appreciate all of that. But Walter Lord's book does the same thing. Walter Lord's book goes all over the Titanic. There, there's not an area of the Titanic that's not touched upon. There's not a class or a particular kind of person that was on the ship that's, that's not referenced or talked about. He goes everywhere from the bridge to the boiler room, from, you know, the squash court to, you know, the third class spaces, you know, things like that. He goes all over the ship in his story. So I really would have liked James Cameron's Titanic to be a big budget telling of that story rather than spend so much of the film engaged in a fiction. <laughs> 
But that said, it is a very engaging fiction. It is a, a very well-told movie that I honestly have very few quibbles with. Most of the quibbles I have with it basically fall into the realm of geeky uh, nitpicks. With, I think, one exception. Now, I realize for other people, this is probably just, as I say, a, a geeky nitpick. However, for me, it's one of those glaring errors that is almost unforgivable. It really is something that pulls me right out of the movie every time I watch it, and that is the collision sequence. The order is given hard of starboard. And as I explained earlier, hard of starboard would mean, back in those days, throwing the wheel to the right so that the ship would turn to the left. But in the movie, the order is given hard of starboard and the wheel is clearly thrown to the left. It's not how ships operated back then, and it really just annoys the heck out of me every time that here's a movie that the filmmakers spent upwards of you know $200 million to get right, and he misses such a basic thing as that. I also feel that at the end of the day, for all the, the money that was lavished on it and the incredible special effects, the wonderful score... The, the fine acting, everything that goes into this movie and the sinking is portrayed in probably the starkest, most horrific, punch-in-the-gut way that it had ever been filmed up to that time and maybe will ever be filmed, it falls short because at the end of the day, it didn't give me the Titanic movie I've always wanted to see. The one that I was excited to see when I first heard that James Cameron, the, the special effects titan, was taking on this project, the movie I had envisioned is one that was going to pull no punches when it came to special effects. The special effects sequence I've always wanted to see, and it's even teased in the movie, when Old Rose is first brought aboard the ship, there's this beautiful scene where she's basically getting a quick and dirty history lesson from the kind of hippie guy, you know, the, the chubby guy with the glasses and the, and the bushy beard and all that. And he's showing her on this, you know, one of the computer monitors, this uh, computer reenactment of the sinking of the ship. And you see the ship fill up, you see the ship break in two, and then there's a, a nice, and it's just a simple computer effects sequence, but there's a nice sequence where he shows how the bow broke off and plunged into the abyss and then smashes into the sea floor. Okay, here we go. She hits the berg on the starboard side, right? She kind of bumps along, punching holes like Morse code, dit, 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 along the side below the water line. Then the forward compartments start to flood. Now as the water level rises, it spills over the watertight bulkheads, which unfortunately don't go any higher than E-deck. So now as the bow goes down, the stern rises up, slow at first and faster and faster until finally she's got her whole ass is sticking up in the air. And that's a big ass. We're talking 20, 30,000 tons, okay? And the hull's not designed to deal with that pressure. So what happens? She splits right down to the keel and the stern falls back level. Then as the bow sinks, it pulls the stern vertical and then finally detaches. Now the stern section just kind of bobs there like a cork for a couple of minutes, floods, and finally goes under about 2.20 a.m., two hours and 40 minutes after the collision. The bow section planes away. 
Landing about a half a mile away, going 20, 30 knots when it hits the ocean floor. Pretty cool, huh? Thank you for that fine forensic analysis, Mr. Bodine. Of course, the experience of it was somewhat different. It's one of the really great scenes in the movie, and I was so excited seeing this movie for the first time that, oh my God, if they're showing me that, then Cameron's aware of it, and we're going to see that scene acted out later in this movie. And sadly, it never happens. I'm not faulting the movie its special effects. The sinking is... uh, it's powerful for me in this movie. It's very, very powerful because it was probably never more horrifically portrayed. I mean, I think that the sinking has been well portrayed in other movies. Um, a Night to Remember is hard for me to watch. It's, uh, it's a great movie. It's so well acted. The special effects for their time are very, very good. But post-sinking, you know, post the point where, where the water closes over the stern... I don't feel a sense of horror with that movie. For me, the ultimate horror with Cameron's Titanic is when the ship is actually gone. You know, you can ask my wife. I was uh, I was shaking in the theater when we went to see that because you know we went to the theater to see it on the big screen, and um, that image when Rose comes up because she and Leo get sucked down by the by the suction and then she comes up without him and there's this pullback shot of her calling for him and trying to find him and we pull back to see just how many people are struggling in that freezing water and um I was uh, I was very upset in the movie theater just shaking and uh, and, and tears welling up because that's a scene I'd had in my head for uh, for I don't know how long. Ever since I'd read Lord's book, that was a scene that uh, that I can envision in my head, and here it was on the screen in in front of me. You know, something that that I felt like Cameron pulled right out of my head and and put up there, and it was horrific. And it, it I'd never seen anything like that before, actually in one of the Titanic movies. I felt like up to that point I'd actually been spared that horror, but here it was, and Cameron wasn't pulling punches. However, I still feel like there's an element to that story that has never been put on the screen. And that's the after Titanic, you know, after sinking. And I mean that in two ways, because now that I think about it, there's, there's two things that I still want to see in a great Titanic movie. I want to see after the ship goes under. I want to follow that plunge, because that was both awesome and horrific in its own right i mean the ship had to fall two and a half miles i mean when the submersibles go down now to dive on titanic it takes them hours to get down there how long did it take for the titanic to actually fall to the ocean floor i'm thinking you know if the submersibles fall at the speed of gravity the same way the ship would then we're talking about a couple hours here but regardless of how long it took that plunge to see that as a as a special effects extravaganza would be pretty awesome. I mean, to see that broken off bow section of the ship just knife through the water for two and a half miles and all the things that the pressure and those dynamic forces must have done to that hull. 
and then it smashes in and digs in like a knife into the ocean floor and settles back. And then the stern. The stern couldn't float. The, the stern wasn't like the bow. The bow still had its basic shape and its basic outline, and it basically knifed through the water underwater the same way it sails above the waves. But when it when the stern broke off, there was nothing buoyant, or it didn't have a shape that allowed it to knife through the water. It just fell like a rock. So it falls like a rock for two and a half miles, hits the ocean floor with this just incredible force. It was like a building being dropped to the bottom of the ocean. Hits the ocean floor, and then all of that trail of water behind it as it had fallen, this wake above it, catches up to the ship and smashes down on it and just crushes it like a a giant hand smashing down onto a birthday cake and just smushes the stern section and just pulverizes it almost like an atomic blast had been detonated right above it and you can see that today when you look at the ship you see the beautiful and majestic bow section sitting perfectly upright and and looking ghostly and clearly it's deteriorating as it sits there but it still has a certain nobility and a certain majesty about it even all these years later whereas the stern section is just this sad smashed and mangled mess of metal and there's a story right there of those two dissimilar descents i would love to see that on the screen the other thing that that i just thought of was when i said after titanic this is something else that i feel has never really been explored in fact there's a a book that's just been published i haven't gotten my hands on it yet but i can't wait to read it's called shadow of the titanic which is nothing but survivor stories This has never really been tackled much, to my knowledge, particularly in a movie or even a TV show, with one exception, which I'll get to in a moment. Inevitably, all Titanic movies stop with the sinking of the ship. Now, some of them will go a little bit further, and they'll show their survivors being picked up by the rescue ships. And some of them will even you know, have a little bit of afterthought, you know, where their survivors are conversing with each other on deck or on this, you know, on the rescue ship, talking about the lessons learned and that sort of thing. None of them, to my knowledge anyway, have ever gone beyond that point. And Titanic still has a story to tell well beyond that. There was drama for years after the disaster, the inquiries and the courtroom dramas and just simple survivor stories what happened to these people some of them most of them went on to live lives that were conducive to the times that they lived in they were affected clearly by this event but at the end of the day they went on to live more or less uneventful lives but there were other lives that that were drastically changed and the world around them changed because of this event again that's a movie i'd really like to see There have been a ton of documentaries about the Titanic. And uh, as I say, just flipping through uh, upcoming shows that are going to be coming up with the uh, anniversary that's fast approaching, there's going to be that many more. Off the top of my head, here's a couple of the best. 
the absolute best one was one that was called Secrets of the Titanic. This was a National Geographic documentary from uh, 1986, followed Ballard's second uh, trip to Titanic. Because the first one, all they did was find the ship. They didn't really go down. They didn't really take a whole lot of pictures or anything like that. They simply found the ship. So they went back the very next year in 1986, and that was the true expedition. That was where they actually explored Titanic uh, via submersible and uh, and robot all-seeing eye type of thing for the first time. Just a fan, fantastic documentary. It's uh, narrated by Martin Sheen, who uh, who just brings something to that uh to the voice performance in that. then as night fell there followed a chilling pantomime which brought home the full impact of what had happened in the glare of photographers flashlights survivors lined carpathia's rail but as thousands waited carpathia first unloaded titanic's lifeboats Seeing finally was believing, 13 small boats, all that remained of the greatest ocean liner in the world. It both tells the story of Ballard's discovery and expedition and intercut through the entire episode is the story of the Titanic. For something that's only around an hour long, it's amazing how much information is put in there, but none of it is ever... None of it ever feels like just an info dump. It's told beautifully and was another one of those things that really lent to my fascination with Titanic. And I can remember watching that documentary over and over. I kept renting it out from the same two video stores over and over again. And every time I would watch that, I kept thinking, this would make a great movie. Somebody's got to make a movie about this. And again, was one of the reasons I was so psyched for when uh, Cameron made his Titanic movie. Another really good one, and this one's kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum because much like Cameron and Ballard, I'm not a fan of the recovery of artifacts from the Titanic. I look at the Titanic as a grave. This is where over 1,500 men, women, and children lost their lives in in one of the most horrific ways you could possibly imagine. This is their final resting place. And I just think it's wrong to go down there and grave rob. That said, Treasures of the Titanic, which is hosted by Doug Llewellyn, and yes, that's Doug Llewellyn from the People's Court, is actually a really good documentary. It follows one of the subsequent dives to Titanic right after Ballard's discovery that went down and started pulling up artifacts. While I don't agree with pulling up the artifacts, it still is a really interesting thing to watch. And it's actually a well-made documentary despite whatever your personal feelings are about the recovery of objects. Llewellyn is uh, remarkably good as... uh, as the narrator of this, I enjoy his commentary quite a lot. And uh, the documentary brings some uh, new and interesting things to the table. This was the first time I can ever remember hearing the theory that uh, it wasn't so much an iceberg as a coal bunker explosion that uh, may have doomed the Titanic. Certainly one of the most startling discoveries during the expedition concerned the finding of a dramatic 30-foot in diameter hole just above the waterline in the bow section of the ship a hole possibly caused by an internal explosion. The 
The expedition found no long slit, no sheared rivets, and no sprung plates, which would have been caused by a collision with an iceberg. The hole offers dramatic views deep inside the Titanic in an area just above a huge coal bunker. It is known that there had been a coal bunker fire smoldering on board the Titanic from the day it left Belfast. The existence of this fire raises the possibility that an explosion occurred at the time of impact with the iceberg, possibly caused by an accumulation of combustible gases, coal dust, or a steam explosion resulting from the ice-cold water hitting the red-hot coals in the bunker. A closer examination of the area convinced the Nautil's commander, Nargiolet, a former ammunitions expert in the French Marines, that indeed the hole showed every evidence of having been caused by an explosion. This explosion theory is supported by a Seattle, Washington engineer named William Dybo, who related to us a story he had been told many times by his father. He claimed that the Titanic, in fact, never struck an iceberg. And in fact, the sh she sank as a result of an explosion that developed from a fire in a coal bunker that had been burning from prior to when the ship sailed from Southampton. Now, he was a sergeant in the Army in World War I and heard this story firsthand from a crewman on the U.S. troop ship SS Mercury. This man claimed to have been a survivor, a uh, surviving stoker of the Titanic. And over the course of the journey back to the United States, my father spent a lot of time playing cards with this man, and this man insisted that the story of the iceberg having been struck was to conceal the real cause of the disaster. And we have always speculated that this possible cover-up was for insurance purposes. This explosion theory remains just that, only a theory. It will be left to future expeditions to determine if indeed it has merit and could have helped contribute to the demise of the Titanic. Not sure how I feel about that, but I love a good conspiracy theory, and uh, and that one lays an interesting one on us. So uh, it, it's well worth a watch. And uh, I found it not long ago on YouTube. The entire thing is available on YouTube to watch for free. Well worth your time to watch it. Something I had never seen until just very very recently was uh, Cameron went back to Titanic after his uh, big theatrical movie, you know, the big uh, Leo DiCaprio, uh, Kate Winslet one, he went back and he actually made a movie for Disney that was called Ghosts of the Abyss, which is pretty much just a straight-up documentary about um, his subsequent dives to Titanic. Um, has Bill Paxton in it, and uh, I always like Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton's just one of my favorite actors. He, he's such an everyman, and I really enjoy him. He's a lot of fun in that, and uh, it's a great great documentary i really like the the score to it and it's haunting because they do this great effects over and over again during the course of the documentary where cameron and uh bill paxton and these others are down at titanic they're actually there at the ship at the bottom of the ocean filming these scenes for this documentary and then they intercut it with 
ghostly people walking around and and they sort of half form or half reform the way the ship originally looked versus how it looks now laying on the bottom of the ocean if you remember at the beginning of cameron's movie titanic when rose was starting to have little flashbacks just before she starts to tell her story it's done kind of similar to that but much more special effects based and much more with it really looking like these are are doomed souls stuck on titanic now on the bottom of the ocean it's eerie i watched this literally after work one night and it was the middle of the night probably two or three o'clock in the morning and i was getting chills it's spooky stuff but absolutely fascinating it it was really really good Um, last one i want to mention and i'm sorry i do not know the exact title of this but i'm sure you can find it out there probably in youtube land somewhere or something Jacques Cousteau, the uh, you know the famous uh, French ocean explorer, um, he had a documentary out there that was not really about the Titanic so much as it was about one of the Titanic's sister ships, the Britannic. And the Britannic had kind of a weird and uh, and tragic story as well. The Britannic was originally supposed to be called the Gigantic. It was it was supposed to be three sisters. There was the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Gigantic. Well, the Gigantic was never, well, it was built, but it wasn't ever named the Gigantic. After the Titanic disaster, they changed the name of the ship to the Britannic. And the Britannic ended up being drafted into service in World War I. And it was eventually torpedoed and went down in about 50 feet of water. I forget exactly where this is. I think it's the Mediterranean. It's been a long time since I've seen this documentary, but I remember really enjoying it. And one of the aspects I liked most about that was that kind of similar to how they bring Old Rose aboard the uh, Keldish in Cameron's Titanic movie. Uh, Cousteau did the same thing in this documentary. He actually takes an old woman down on a dive to the Britannic. This old woman actually was a survivor of the Britannic. And uh, it, it's nice. It's a, It was a really nice uh, moment. And one of these days, I've got to track down one of the books I lack in my Titanic collection was published not too long ago was this book about a woman... That was actually a survivor of both the Titanic and the Britannic. I, I always thought that that was really cool. And if I'm not mistaken, I think she may have been on the Olympic in some capacity or other as well. So that's a pretty remarkable story. And again, you know, something I forgot to mention about Lightoller. You know, Lightoller, again, you know, he was the second officer, senior surviving officer of the, of the Titanic, had been shipwrecked before. And was shipwrecked at least two more times after Titanic. That's a pretty remarkable story in itself, right there. You know, again, and you know, lending into that fascination with the event and the and the people that were in it, along with uh, books and magazines and documentaries and movies and everything else. Um, of all things, the Titanic has been in video games. I've only owned one of them so far. It was an old uh, uh, Commodore sixty four game, of all things. I think it was just simply called uh, The Search for the Titanic or something to that effect. I got to be honest, it was a super, super boring game. It was essentially you go out in the middle of the ocean and you search for the Titanic. If you were lucky enough to find it, then you were going to get some uh, grainy uh, Commodore 64 digitized pictures of what the ship looked like you know, at the bottom of the ocean in, in 85 and 86 when, uh, when Ballard found it. 
I never did. I never could find the ship. I, I didn't have enough patience for a uh, a game like that because it wasn't so much a game as it was a it was an exercise in patience, which I have in very short quantities. So, but I, I understand there's been some really good ones since. Um, I actually had another one. Now that I think about it, it was a, it was an early PC game that was like a. I don't know if you'd call it a role-playing game, or it was like one of those mystery-solving games where you wander around in the ship and you interact with other other characters on the ship to try to solve a mystery or something like that. Uh, I can remember roaming all over the ship in that, but I, I never actually played the game itself. Um, but I, I did own that, and I thought it was kind of interesting. I think my sister played that game and, and enjoyed it quite a bit. And there were uh, there was at least a couple of different um, Titanic uh, interactive CD-ROMs. I know I had one of them that was was kind of like a, a documentary. Um, it was like documentary taken to the next step, where you could interact with you know with the CD-ROM and stuff like that. Um, I think that may have spun out of Cameron's movie. Now that I think about it, but I forget. But I, I know I had that for a while and uh, enjoyed playing around with that. Um, there was one that just recently came out for the Wii that was something like Titanic Mysteries or Titanic Murder Mysteries or something to that effect. Um, I, I need to pick it up if I can ever find it on the cheap, but I, I still haven't ever played it. I actually have a number of uh, weekly world news newspapers, if you can call it a newspaper, that were Titanic related. Because for a while there, a few years ago, it seemed like about every third month there'd be a whole fresh flood of Titanic related stories in the weekly world news. There was one about captain Smith being found alive and well floating around in the middle of the North Atlantic in a, in a, in a lifeboat. There was another one about a baby, an infant being found in the middle of the Atlantic floating in a, in a life preserver ring. There was another one about one of the expeditions had gone down there and found that there were actually there were there was like a, a society living inside the Titanic in in one of the uh, watertight compartments, and they had managed to survive all these years. And uh, as the expedition was down there nosing around the wreck, they actually looked in one of the portals and and saw these people staring back at them and watching them. I love stuff like that. It's completely silly and ridiculous, but uh, I get the biggest kick out of something like that. Which lends in nicely to uh, something else I wanted to talk about was uh, Titanic in popular fiction. Titanic uh, is one of those just favorite settings for people that that want to tell an interesting tale, whether it's fiction or especially science fiction, and uh, and using Titanic as a, as a background. One of the earliest examples of this was uh, Noel Coward's uh, film Cavalcade, which uh, came out in '33. And it's basically the story of English life, I guess you would say, from uh, New Year's Eve in 1899. So it's the turn of the the 19th into the 20th century through, I think it runs all the way through the 30s. And it's basically telling kind of the same sort of story as, say, Ragtime and also touches upon what I had said earlier about Titanic kind of drawing a close on the Gilded Age. And this movie kind of kind of tells that same story of, of this way of life that was drawing to a close. What with, you know, it, it touches upon the sinking of the Titanic. And then, of course, World War I was the, the final 
capper on the Gilded Age, what with you know the war itself and income tax and things like that. It really brought a way, an end to a, an entire way of life that has changed our world, and it's never been the same since. The very first episode of the science fiction series uh, Time Tunnel, which uh, I believe was scored by John Williams, if I'm not mistaken. The very first episode of that, the time traveler in that series, found himself on the Titanic. So the Titanic basically jump-started that show. There was also a show, I think this was in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken, it was called Voyagers, which was, again, about time travelers. They, uh, they had an episode where they were on the Titanic. One of the most uh, popular fictional titanic tie-ins was uh, both the uh, the novel and then eventually the movie raised the titanic um i like the book quite a bit it was interesting again titanic is just a, a, a an element of the story it, it the titanic isn't really the main character the the book and the movie both they basically the the plot of it is that it's determined that this rare element that could be very important in setting up this uh, this missile defense shield for the United States, this rare element is needed to power it. It's kind of like a super uranium type of thing. And it's determined that the only quantity of it went down on the Titanic. So the government sponsors this expedition to go and find and raise the titanic and uh it's it's interesting it was the book was uh, was better but the movie had a lot of things working for it too the movie is almost universally panned by critics i enjoyed it for a number of reasons probably the biggest one being that uh richard jordan was the star and richard jordan plays uh dirk pitt who's the hero of uh, many of clive cussler's novels and Jordan also played uh, Francis Seven in Logan's Run, one of my favorite movies of all time. Jordan also played the uh, the government guy that kind of encourages uh, Alec Baldwin's character in uh, The Hunt for Red October. Anyway, it also stars uh, Jason Robards, and Jason Robards could do no wrong in my opinion. He was just a great, great actor. Anne Archer is in it. I love Anne Archer. She was the girlfriend in Hero at Large starring John Ritter, if you've ever seen that movie. Alec Guinness, Ben Kenobi, is in it. He plays a survivor. And that's one of the most poignant moments of the entire movie is uh, Dirk Pitt travels all the way to uh, England to meet Alec Guinness's character in the movie. And they have this great interaction between the two of them. He just plays this nice old English gentleman. This is my Titanic collection. All that's left of her except memories. What a lovely thing she was. Standing as high in the water as one of your skyscrapers. Longer than two rugby fields. And furnishings to match the finest mansions in England. She was one of a kind. No question about it. And God himself, they said, couldn't sink her. Then in two hours she was gone, and fifteen hundred souls with her. And right toward the end of their scene, he goes over to this frame on the wall and he opens it up, and he pulls out a pennant. 
I took the pennant off her before she went down. If you manage to bring her up again, maybe you'd put it back where it belongs. It's just a, a, a beautiful scene between the two, and uh, the score was by John Barry. And, you know, I, I never really appreciated John Barry until fairly recent times. But this has always been one of my absolute favorite John Barry scores. I'm led to believe that he didn't think much of it himself, maybe because he didn't like the movie, but his score was fantastic. The film itself, again, almost universally panned. Um, I've never really heard anybody else that, that really enjoyed the movie, but I liked it. I, I thought it was it was interesting. It was a troubled production. It didn't make a whole lot of money, but uh, if you ever get the time... Uh, give it a look. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was it was you know, for what it was. I thought it was a pretty decent movie. It is dated now that they've actually found the ship, and there's almost no way that they could ever really bring her up. Certainly not in the way that they do it in this movie. But you know, looking at it now as kind of a uh, historical oddity slash science fiction movie, then yeah, I, I think you'd get a kick out of it. I mentioned before that no one's really ever tackled the uh, subject of life after Titanic, but that's not entirely true because there was actually one book that, while it was fictional, I thought did a really good job of portraying what life would have been like for someone, you know, especially a rich person, after they survived this horrific ordeal. And that was a book by Danielle Steele, of all people. Now, I never imagined myself ever in my lifetime reading a, a Danielle Steele book. Now, I'm not trying to be a, a cultural snob, but it's just she writes romance books. That's not really my thing. But she did write a book that was about the Titanic. So, of course, you know, when I was really at, at the height of my obsession with Titanic, um, I had to get it and I had to read it. And I was surprised to find, hey, this was actually a really good book. And it was called No Greater Love. And the book starts out right when the disaster is happening. And it follows this young woman. And I'm trying to remember if she's newly married or if she was just engaged. I think she was just engaged, if I remember properly. Anyway, the the man in her life is lost in the disaster. And she survives. And so the entire rest of the book is about her life after Titanic. And it was a really good read. There was a TV movie made about it. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. I, I liked the book a lot more. But the TV movie, if you get a chance to watch it, you know, you could probably find it on like you know one of those women's channels, you know, Lifetime or or you know whatever. But uh, it was it was a pretty good movie. Indiana Jones of all people survived the Titanic. There was a young Indiana Jones novel by Les Martin, simply called Young Indiana Jones and the Titanic Adventure, in which uh, Indy uh, was actually there. A good number of characters and properties of uh, popular fiction have uh, teamed up or crossed over or had something to do with the Titanic over the years, uh, not the least of which was uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. There was, uh, during the Dark Horse days, I remember picking up an issue of Godzilla simply because Godzilla, I think he was bouncing around through time or something like that, and winds up you know, having some sort of interaction with uh, the Titanic. 
Titanic was uh, often a little background element or sometimes a visual gag or something in Aquaman, particularly when uh, Peter David was working on the book. And of course, in uh, John Byrne's reimagining of Superman, Man of Steel, one of the newspaper articles that uh, Superman's mother keeps in her scrapbook was an article about the Titanic having mysteriously re, uh, resurfaced. And of course, that was thanks to uh, Superman acting uh, behind the scenes before he had publicly revealed himself. Another of the uh, DC Comics superheroes had a very definite and direct connection with Titanic, and that was uh, Neptune Perkins. Now, Neptune Perkins was this aquatic-based hero, sort of a poor man's Aquaman, and his mother was an actual Titanic survivor. It turns out that uh, Perkins' grandfather, he was this nutty, evil scientist kind of guy, and he came up with this like mobile island submarine type of thing. He eventually disguised it as an iceberg and calling himself Captain Nemo, he used it to ram the Titanic, making the ship sink because he wanted the gold that was on board or something to that effect. It's a very goofy story, but still, I always had a soft spot for uh, Neptune Perkins, mostly because of his uh, ties to Titanic. And even Star Trek has gotten in on the act. I remember there was a book, uh, I can't remember the name of it, something to do with ice, where Kirk and McCoy go to this ice planet and they meet up with the guy that's running the place. And in his office was a, uh, a picture, a framed uh, piece of art uh, depicting the sinking of the Titanic. And then very recently, I was reading uh, one of the uh, New Frontier books. It was actually one of the uh, Captain's Table books, which was a series of uh, just stories of starship captains relating you know, one tale or another from their history. And in the Captain's Tale novel that tells uh, the story of the Captain from the New Frontier series, he's actually relating his origin story. And it turns out at the very end of the story, the person he's telling this story to is Captain E.J. Smith of the Titanic. But something I'd always really wanted to see was a proper crossover of Star Trek and the Titanic with actual Star Trek characters on the Titanic. I actually struggled with this story for a long time because it's a story that I thought, well, if they're never going to do it, maybe I'll write it myself and never really got much beyond the just, you know, thinking about it, imagining it phase. But some, what I'd kind of come up with was an idea where for some reason or other, the uh, crew of the Enterprise, and I never really settled on which crew I wanted it to be. Would it be, you know, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, or would it be, say, like uh, Picard and Data uh, type of thing? I actually kind of favor using next-gen characters more for some reason. I'm not sure why. Maybe because the story I came up with was, for some reason, they have to go back to that night and actually ensure that the events unfold so that Titanic sinks. And I even had a, a, a title for it, which was Sink the Titanic, which was kind of a, a play on Sink the Bismarck. Plus, there had already been the book, Raise the Titanic, so I thought, well, this would be an interesting scenario where, you know, in sort of a uh, City on the Edge of Forever style, the crew of the Enterprise has to ensure that the greatest maritime disaster happens. And I thought, that could be a really interesting story. And uh, it still rattles around in the back of my brain. Maybe one of these days I'll, I'll try to get it down on paper or something, but uh, I would love to have a real 
Star Trek author uh, tackle that story one of these days, so eh, who knows? But beyond all that, one of the big things that keeps me interested and, and keeps me fascinated with Titanic are the uh, the mysteries and the myths and the conspiracy theories. And then just, you know, the, the flat-out speculations about the whole thing. One of the big ones, and there's an entire chapter devoted to this in The Night Lives On by Walter Lord, was what happened to the good ones. The good ones were this family. It was uh, a mother and father and I, I believe six children. Nobody knows what happened to these people. They were traveling third class, but they weren't, you know, they weren't uneducated. They weren't, you know, non-English speaking immigrants or anything like that. You know, they, they were from London and the father had taken this job in America, Niagara Falls. And he was coming over to accept the, the position. And in order, because he had such a large family and they, they weren't, you know, they weren't extremely well off or anything. They were trying to save money. So they were traveling first class. And it just becomes this story of fascination with you know, what, what possibly could have happened to these people. I mean, this was a large family and no one knows. Not one of them survived. Was it a matter of they, they were kept below decks? They were trapped? They, uh, they just didn't want to split up the family? Did they just never have an opportunity? Why does no one know what happened to them? Why does no one remember seeing anything of them? They were most definitely there, and they most definitely died. And that's all that we really know. There's been stories over the years that there was a mummy on board the Titanic, or a, some sort of coffin on board the Titanic. There's the thing, again, about the, the coal bunker explosion. Could that really have contributed to, you know, the sinking of the Titanic? Could it actually, you know, as was speculated in the documentary I mentioned, the Doug Llewellyn one, the, the speculation in that was that it was the coal bunker explosion outright that caused the, the sinking of the Titanic, that there never was the, the whole thing with the iceberg. I don't lend a lot of credence to that, but again, I love a good conspiracy theory, and, and that's one of the more interesting ones. But in my mind, there, there are two huge ones that are probably the biggest speculations of all. The first one, and this really, honestly, never really occurred to me, well, not much anyway, until there was a story, and this is going back several years now, but I remember there was a, a news story that got a lot of play, where these school children, the, the story was played up in the newspaper, or, or whatever the article was, that these school children had basically solved the mystery. How could the Titanic have been saved? Once she'd actually had the collision with the iceberg, and once the ship was doomed, could anything have been done to, to save the ship? And the, the article really played up the fact that these kids were so smart that they'd figured it all out. And I remember there being a couple different scenarios. The one where the ship was actually saved, the ship itself didn't sink. They basically played out all of the anchor, you know, all the anchor chain, uh, and played it out as far as they could, and they wrapped the anchor around the iceberg. And presumably this was the same iceberg that you know mortally wounded the Titanic. I, I don't remember if that's ever stated in the in the article or not. But basically they chained the Titanic, the bow of the Titanic to the iceberg. And this buoys up the, the ship enough to where it stops filling with water and, and the ship is saved. 
I gotta be honest, I never bought that one at all. Now, I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure that that wouldn't work. There's a number of reasons immediately that come to mind where I don't think that that would work. Probably the biggest one is I don't think that they would have time for that. Because that would presuppose backing the ship up in the dark and coming alongside the iceberg in such a way that they could basically pull up to it, get out on it, and be able to play out the chain and, and actually wrap it around the ship. Now, you got to remember, this the ship's uh, anchor weighed tons. So I'm not sure that there was a way that they could ever lift the thing to begin with. And certainly, you know, how would you lift it? How would you get it off the ship? How would you get it around the iceberg? And then I guess bring it back on deck or chain it to one of the links or so I think the the theory here was wrapping it around the iceberg and then chaining it back to itself I don't know that there was time certainly I don't think that there was the equipment to do anything of the sort it's an interesting idea I just don't think it practically plays out plus again by the time the danger was fully realized by enough people, both passengers and crew, I don't think that there was time to do anything like that. The other one I can remember, and there there may have been more than just these two, this is only what I'm remembering off the top of my head, but the other one I remember was more of how could all of the people have been saved? And that came down to something about forming a ring. And I'm trying to remember what the ring consisted of, and I want to say that ring consisted of lifeboats. And then in the ring of lifeboats, there was something that was spread out. And I can't remember what it was. I don't remember if it was a can, like canvas. I don't know if it was sails or mattresses or just everything floatable. Um, I don't remember what it was. But I remember the, there being a ring. And somehow in that ring, everyone could be saved. It's, it's a beautiful thought. It's nice to think. You know, and, and I'm glad that that serious time and effort was was spent by someone trying to figure out, you know, what more could have been done. But again, it, it all comes down to being incredibly unrealistic to me because one of the the big important things that probably the two biggest factors you've got to remember in this story is that the danger wasn't realized until it was really too late to do much about it, and this being. The very first time this ship went out, everybody, even the most experienced uh, sailor, was very green in this situation because they didn't they didn't know the ship. They didn't know the ship. They didn't know each other. There wasn't any drill. There wasn't any um, clear-cut, defined way of doing anything like that. So just trying to coordinate something as simple as lowering the boats was done in a very inconsistent and haphazard manner. It was done completely different on the port side as to how it was handled on the starboard side. That's a very simple, straightforward thing, the lowering of boats. And even that, there wasn't a lot of consistency. So how in the world would you pull together what would have to be more than just crew? You'd have to get the passengers involved in a major effort like wrapping the chain around an iceberg or forming a ring of, of lifeboats to make something like that work. In fact, orders were given to some of the lifeboats. Some of the lifeboats were told, row a short way off and stand by when we call you come back. And they didn't. And then other ones were told you know, to row for a ship on the horizon. Instead, they laid on their oars and did nothing. 
So, I mean, even with being given orders, there were boats that didn't do what they were told to do. How in the world would you ever get all of them to form a perfect ring? So, it's a beautiful thought. I just don't think it's realistic. That said, do I have anything to offer other than just criticisms of other people's ideas? No, I really don't. I've thought about this probably an unhealthy amount over the years. What could you have done? And I have to agree with Walter Lord, who speculated on the same thing in The Night Lives On. What could have been done to save the ship once she'd had the impact with the iceberg? And the sad answer is I don't think anything could have been done. The only thing I'll slightly disagree with him about is that maybe, maybe a flat-out dash for the light on the horizon, you know, it wouldn't have hurt them to try it. Or maybe it would. You know, he presupposes that the ship couldn't have stood the stress. I think that's with the assumption of there being this gash along the side of the ship, which history has now proven wasn't the case. That basically, much like the uh, the hippie guy points out in Cameron's Titanic, it basically amounted to a, a series of like Morse code dit dit dits along the side of the ship that punched holes. So it was, you know, a popped rivet here, it was a broken seam there, it was a busted plate here, that sort of thing, rather than an actual, like, tremendous rent in the side of the ship. Um, that being the case, again, I, what, would, what would it hurt to at least try? The ship was doomed anyway. You know, the, the worst case scenario is that the ship sank a little faster than what it actually did. But at the end of the day, to, to basically do nothing but, but put everyone off in, in lifeboats, uh, I mean, it, it seems like you, you just want to think that there's something more that could have been done. Was there really? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't really think so. Beyond just trying to maybe move the ship one more time and, and, and make a dash for the, for the one hope that you do see off in the distance. But likely they wouldn't have made it. Likely the ship would have would have been in a condition to where they wouldn't have gotten far. Plus, now that I think about it, I think uh, Lord even points out himself that by the time they probably could have thought to do that, that the uh, that the engines had already stopped and were blowing off steam. So by that point, there there wasn't much chance of of getting the ship you know underway again. The other huge question, and I would love to see someone like, say, Harry Turtledove, who is a master of what they call alternative, what is it, alternative history, I believe. He writes books about things like, you know, what if the South had won the Civil War? I believe they call that genre alternative history, if I'm not mistaken. I would love to see him or someone like him tackle this big question is what would the world be like if the Titanic hadn't sunk? I have spent tons of time thinking about this, but of course to really tackle a question like that, you have to be incredibly well-versed on history and on the times and on the times that followed and really just be a student of history and the flows and eddies and currents of history and how history plays out 
And I, sadly, I'm just not that person. While I am fascinated with the Titanic and the era in which she existed, you know, I'm by no means an expert and, and don't feel, you know, the, the remotest bit qualified to, to truly tackle that subject beyond just, you know, rank amateur speculation. Personally, I would like to believe that the world would be incredibly different if the, world, if the Titanic had not sunk. Because, again, I just look at the world the way it was and the attitudes of the time and the way men lived their lives at that time and can't help but think that that was a, a glorious golden age of technology and confidence and mastery. Or, or at least that was the popular perception at the time. You know, could that golden age have lasted much longer than it actually did? Possibly. Could we have had bigger and better and greater technological achievements even faster than we got them? Possibly. When you look at the last hundred years, now that we are actually at the hundred year anniversary of Titanic, and look at the world then and look at the world now. And it's almost as if you're looking at two completely different worlds. It's almost as if you're looking at, 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 at an alien culture from another world. It is so incredibly different. Cars were just starting to make the scene. You know, this was the time of horses still got most people around. Attitudes were completely different. You know, the, the sense, you know, the uh, how the, po the public perceived things like manners and decency and how we treated one another in some ways they were more refined in other ways they were incredible you know far less refined certainly there weren't uh the same rights and civil civil liberties given out to all people as they are today i mean it was very much a uh, an, an anglo-saxon world at the time but there were elements of even of that world of the of the confidence that people had in things and in their accomplishments and just the world around them that and maybe this is just looking back with rose-colored glasses and not seeing all the the undesirable things about an age like that as well it's just the good things that you see that that makes it more appealing than maybe it should be but even with all that there is something sad about that age and that way of life having been lost one of the things i can't help but speculate would we have gotten to the moon faster it's entirely possible if the titanic hadn't sunk and we had held on to that feeling of of true mastery of of all we surveyed if we started to feel that there were no more worlds to conquer here on earth then man could have very easily have turned his eyes to the stars that much sooner than we actually did. And barring any setbacks there and any great disasters of a, uh, a even a small or a titanic nature, we could have gone out into space. We could still be out in space today. We could be further out and, and more advanced in space today in that alternate world than we are now simply because of confidence. I think more than anything what the Titanic really did and, and the, the big lesson that most people took away was a shattering of complacency, a, a shattering of that sense of order, 
and confidence in our own abilities and in our mastery of the world. What's really funny is almost every Titanic thing that you come across, be it a book or a documentary or a movie, almost every one of them, almost invariably, will give you some sort of moral of the story, some sort of lesson learned at the end of it. And they vary wildly from you know, not having too much faith in technology to, you know, dare, you know, don't dare challenge God, you know, and, and pronounce yourself unsinkable and say that God himself could not sink this ship and things like that. You know, they, they vary all over the place, but most of them basically boil down to too much faith in man and man's achievements and man's technology. And this is a lesson that has been repeated and supposedly learned at least since you know the the earliest titanic books started to to appear and and the first the first real inklings of titanic uh fandom came along yet for all those lessons and there were even sermons on the subject now that i think about it i can't help but think of things like the challenger or even that recent, uh, you know, the Italian uh, cruise ship disaster. You know, here, again, here we are, a hundred years removed, and Lytoller, during one of his testimonies at, at one of the hearings, had said something about, you know, the Titanic disaster being this confluence of events that couldn't have happened again in a hundred years. <laughs> I just find it very strange that here we are a hundred years later, and we just had another cruise ship disaster of... A type of ship that most people look at today and go, that's so far removed from Titanic, that could never happen again. Now, thank God there wasn't this massive loss of life that there was with the Titanic, but lives were lost in that disaster. And those are clearly the kind of cruise ships that we have today that people don't think of going down. Finally, for me, one of the biggest reasons I'm fascinated with the Titanic is that Titanic endures. I'm fascinated by Titanic because it's fascinating to be fascinated with it, if that makes any sort of sense at all. It's one of those things where you can look at and there's so many facets to the story and so many facets to being fascinated with it that you can't put your finger on any particular one. It just is an enduring and appealing fascination. When I think of Titanic today, I don't really think of the ship as it was, as this big, beautiful thing. I don't really think of these fancy and exquisitely dressed millionaires and and rich and popular celebrities. I don't really think of anything of the world of 1912. What I keep coming back to is that, that image of the ghost ship sitting on the bottom of the Atlantic. Uh, Every time I think of Titanic, almost invariably I'm thinking about she's out there somewhere, even today, under all that water, all that crushing pressure, and just sitting there. And I find it sad that here she is, this beautiful, elegant old lady, stripped of all her jewelry like she'd been grave robbed but still sitting there. That speaks to me. I'm not sure entirely what it's saying, but it does. It speaks to me. It's, again, it's the the sadness of it all. 
I think that's one of the biggest reasons why shortly after Cameron's movie that my interest in Titanic waned for a good number of years. Actually, it, was, it wasn't until recently. It wasn't really until sitting down to try to do my homework for this episode that I could feel myself being pulled back in, that I could feel the, the allure of Titanic again. But the problem with Titanic for me personally is that at the end of the day, I feel it's a somewhat unhealthy obsession. It's not good to be this sad all the time because this isn't a feel-good story. There, there's actually very little to take away from this story in the sense of feeling good about things. It's so sad. It's so tragic. Even the, the heroes and the heroism of the story are ultimately outweighed by the simple fact so many lives were lost. And it was all so, so sad and tragic. I had the opportunity a few years ago to go to one of the traveling Titanic uh, exhibits when it came to Atlanta when I was living near there. And I went. And it was very interesting and educational. But ultimately, as moved as I was walking away from that, I just had this profound and, and crushing sense of deep, deep sadness. I don't know exactly what it is that interests me. You know, a, a kid from upstate New York, you know, born 56 years after all this happened that, that keeps me interested. I really don't. But it's one of those things that even beyond all the other things that I consider myself a fan of, it's one of those things that I, I probably, it's probably the thing that I have to most keep in check. You know, I, while I, I, I fully agree that there is uh, an, an unhealthy degree of obsession with any fandom, you know, be it comics or Star Trek or Star Wars or anything like that, there is a degree to where you can get sucked in too far. Titanic, for me, is probably the most dangerous one because it's one where you, I feel, for me personally, the, the elements of the story that I'm most fascinated with aren't the technical aspects or statistical aspects or anything like that. It's at the end of the day, it's the human aspects of the story, the tragic aspects of the story. And who wants to stay in that mindset more than is absolutely necessary? For me, it's usually enough that on or around April 14th every year, I'll, I'll pull out a copy of a Night to Remember or one of the other really good Titanic movies or documentaries and watch it that night as kind of my silent memorial to the event and the lives lost. I recently just reread A Night to Remember and The Night Lives On, mostly in preparation for this show, or at least, you know, that would be the official story, but also just because they're excellent books. They're probably the, the two books I've reread more than any other books in my collection. And I really recommend them. But now that I've gotten this episode out of my system, I'm going to kind of let Titanic lie again for a while. I see that there's another one of those traveling Titanic exhibits that's come here to the area where I'm living now. I may go see that. And I'll probably go see Titanic 3D now that it's out because I do enjoy the movie and I haven't actually watched the film in a good number of years so I'm due for a rewatch and I'd love to see it on the big screen again. 
but I'm always going to have to be careful about not getting too close to this subject again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've enjoyed making it. I hope that uh, I've given you a little bit of insight into my personal interest in the subject, and uh, I would love to hear from you if you have an interest in Titanic as well, a, a Titanic story or a particular facet of the legend that uh, fascinates you or something, something like that that you want to share. This uh, April 14th and 15th, if you have a moment, think a little thought for all the lives that were lost in that disaster, and uh, just take a moment to remember Titanic. My name is Scott Gardner. Thank you very much for listening.